Hey, it's Amber and welcome to season three of Politics But Make It Fashion. Come chat with me. Hey guys, I'm Amber Viola and welcome to Politics But Make It Fashion. Come chat with me. So this is our one year anniversary celebration and also my first book reading that I've ever done before. So this is gonna be the start of a new season coming up. We have the election starting and I'm gonna be going back to doing my weekly political uh, podcast every week, along with still um, doing some interviews on the side with Come Interview With Me. So thank you. Um, thank you everybody for being here. I'm very excited and also very nervous. So thank you so much for coming. And tonight is a very special night for me. I wrote a short story called My Time in the VA, um, 72 Hours of Hell, My Time in the VA. And it's about my descent into a little bit of madness and my trying to find my escape and trying to find help um, by also trying to use the systems around me particularly the VA healthcare system, um, which is not always that great to people. And there is a movie um, called The Family Stone that me and my brother love, and we watch it normally every year for Christmas. And there's a part in it where Claire Dane's character is talking about a story about a man who just needed to build this totem and how he just had this hole in his heart to build it and he didn't know why he like didn't know what a totem was never built one before and he felt like he just had to do it and that's how I really felt about this story that I had to tell it um I had to write it it was like a hole in my heart I had to get it out and then after I wrote it and it was published um come to find out that what the VA did to me is something that they've been doing to hundreds of other veterans as well and I didn't know that when I wrote the story um, I didn't know the extent that it really went to. And then when I found it out, I was even more, you know, I had even more like umph in me to make sure to get it out and to tell my story because that just proved to me like, wow, they're not just doing this to me. They're doing it to a lot of other people. And a lot of you may know that around 44 veterans a day kill themselves um, and it's a, an epidemic and I feel like nobody's doing anything about it and then come to find out there are vets who are going to the VA, going to seek help and then being forced into involuntary holds and be basically being forced into psych units and things when they were coming voluntarily to say, hey, I'm struggling, I need help. So I'm going to read to you guys um, my short story and then afterwards, I wanted to kind of open it up for any questions and discussions, so. I am a single mother, social worker, community activist, and a veteran that served for the Naval Forces. This very personal incident happened while I was in the middle of finishing my master's degree. On the outside, my life probably looked perfect. But on the inside, I felt like I wanted to die. My name is Amber, and this is a story about my time in a Veterans Affairs Hospital. While on active duty, I was diagnosed with adjustment disorder as well as depression and anxiety. 
Adjustment disorder is a feeling of hopelessness, and these feelings can manifest into physical symptoms that occur after experiencing a stressful event in your life. These physical symptoms can happen right after the event, a couple weeks later, even months to a year later. You're probably wondering to yourself which life event I've had to endure to get these diagnoses. If I'm honest with you, I don't really know. I'm a child of divorce, sexual abuse, and constantly moved doing, due to my mother being in the army. I am sure just being an army brat alone could cause adjustment disorder. In 2016, after the birth of my daughter, I experienced severe postpartum depression. Due to this, I decided to go to the behavioral health department at my duty station. Unfortunately, it did not initially go well. For the first time in my life, my thoughts and feelings were completely ignored and I was just being told what to do. The first therapist I saw at my duty station wanted to put me in the hospital for inpatient treatment. That was something I couldn't do. I was a new mother, still breastfeeding and newly separated. My biggest concerns were not the inpatient therapy, but the issues outside of my military duty. I did not want my husband at the time to find out about this and use it against me to obtain full custody of my daughter. Lastly, I was concerned about my job and my clearance. I was a gunner's mate. As a gunner's mate, it was my duty to make sure the artillery of the ships as well as the electrical systems were all in order. I felt like seeking help for mental health would end my military career. I walked out of the therapist's office very upset, even with the tears streaming down my face after feeling like nothing but a nuance and a nuisance, they tried to physically stop me from leaving. A second therapist, who I'll name Carol, overheard the whole ordeal in the first therapist's office and kindly asked me to come see her. Begrudgingly, I followed her into her office, sat down, and we talked. We talked for over an hour, and she surprisingly validated every one of my concerns. It felt surreal that I actually found an amazing therapist who helped me and really supported me. She was willing to work with my insane work schedule due to working 24-hour shifts. At her suggestion, I began intensive outpatient therapy. Carol helped me set up with a local therapist through Veterans Affairs after I left the Navy in 2018. The first therapist I had after my separation was great. We'll call her Paola. Due to being a single mother, I needed to bring my daughter with me. She was only one years old during the time and either slept during the sessions or nursed. I was so anxious about having to bring my daughter with me. But when I walked into her office, the first thing I noticed was her breast pump and gear. Come to find out, Paola was also a new nursing mother. That instantly made me feel so comfortable and safe in her space. After seeing Paola for approximately a year, she unfortunately transferred. It was a difficult idea for me to come to terms with. Having to end a relationship with someone, therapist or not, is difficult. I'd be lying if I said some days were better than others, but I believe that overall, I was able to cope all right with these feelings. I was left without a therapist for months. And around 2019, I was finally assigned, um, assigned a new therapist. Sandy was my best and my biggest cheerleader. As a therapist, you are not supposed to look at your client's social media or Google them. Due to being a public figure and a community activist, she had seen me on the news and in newspapers on several different occasions. I imagine it would be hard to not see your client if you make the cover of the local newspaper or the top story of the local news. Personally, I believe that knowing my activism and what I try to do for my community was a big help because she could understand my concerns. Once COVID hit, the VA did not allow children under 18 in the facility. In theory, I can understand the reasoning behind this, but in reality, the most female veterans with children are single parents, at least at some point. 
The policy made it impossible for me to go to therapy as well as other medical appointments I needed. Due to those circumstances, I reached out to the patient advocate for the VA and was given the okay to bring my daughter with me. When I arrived at the hospital, I was told she could not enter. There are so many barriers when it comes to seeking mental health treatment. One is often not thought about our single parents. For my time in the Navy, I became ill. This was due to my deployment, my living on a ship for many years. I also faced rising mental health issues due to the isolation, lack of treatment, as many others did. Because of this, Sandy and I were finally able to do video therapy and phone calls. In 2020, I graduated with my bachelor's degree in social work and immediately began working. I worked through COVID-19 pandemic at home and alone in my office. Due to this, I began to experience extreme burnout. But at this time, I did not know what that was. During this, I ended up leaving my job. I lost a bunch of weight and did not want to leave my bed. This was what led to my mental health crisis. Due to the trust I had in Sandy and I had built together, I was able to go to her when I felt like I really needed extra help. On Thursday night, I called Sandy and told her I was having a very difficult time because of my current mental health state. We both agreed it would be beneficial for me to check myself into the VA on a voluntary hold over the weekend. We came up with a safety plan and decided I would go to the hospital in the morning after I took my daughter to school. I felt very confident and happy with my decision. Sandy was going to be off that day, but told me to call her if I needed anything. On Friday morning, I took my daughter to school, double-checked that someone was still going to pick her up after school. My mother knew about my voluntary hold and was willing to watch her while I was at the VA. I was stuck. I stuck to our safety plan, and part of the plan was to give my friend my firearms and promise not to kill myself on Thursday night. I arrived at the VA around 9 in the morning, and it just went downhill from there. I arrived at the ER, checked in. Sandy told me to be honest with them about why I was there, which I did. This was the first time I'd truly been open about how I was feeling and what I was going through. The nurses who checked me in were so kind. I knew I would have to give up my phone once taken to behavioral health ward. The problem started when a social worker showed up. I was placed in a holding cell that was freezing and giving hideous red scrubs. The social worker also took my phone. The nurses apologized and said they did not know my phone would be taken so soon. I would not have minded if I was going to be in my room and behavioral health in a decent amount of time. I was wrong. I began to speak with the social worker who was not friendly at all. I told her what I was going through and a safety plan I had made with Sandy. The social worker then informed me that there was no room at the Wilkes-Barre VA and at the closest VA to my house and that they were going to send me like far away. As I expressed my desire to be admitted to the Wilkes-Barre VA, I adamantly conveyed to the social worker that I did not want to be sent elsewhere. The proximity to my daughter was of the utmost importance to me, and it was a central element of my carefully devised plan. Regrettably, the social worker informed me that I had no choice in the matter, stating that if I refused to commit commit voluntarily, they would initiate a 302 involuntary commitment. A 302 happens if you are elevated and determined you need to be involuntary committed to a mental health facility. I no longer had a choice, and she called security to stop me from leaving. I asked for my phone so I could call Sandy, and I was told, and I told them that she was off, and they would not let me speak to her. Overwhelming, overwhelmed by the unexpected term of events, I found myself succumbing to despair. Tears streamed down my face, and the weight of the situation felt unbearable. Exhausted, hungry, shivering, I realized that hours had passed, and it was now lunchtime. 
Engaging in a heated argument with the social worker, I expressed my frustrations, believing that she was attempting to sabotage my life. I laminated the potential consequences of having a 302 on my record, fearing that it would limit future employment opportunities, adding to a complex uh, complexity of the situation. I, too, am a social worker, social worker, acutely aware of the implications of such a record. Amid my tears, the social worker made a disingenuous claim, assuring me that no one would discover my involuntary hold status. This assertion only served to deepen my skepticism and further erode my trust in the system. Emotions mingled with desperation and I, as I grappled with the reality that my autonomy was now being stripped away. With each passing moment, the situation intensified and my pleas to be released fell on deaf ears. I was stuck and I could not leave. The involuntary hold imposed against my will served as a stark reminder of the power dynamics at play within the mental health system. The discrepancy between the principles I upheld as a social worker and the treatment I received only deepened my distress. As I faced the prospect of being confined against my wishes, it became clear that my voice was being silenced and my agency compromised. In the midst of the turmoil, a small glimmer of solace appeared in the form of compassionate nurses who understood the distress I was experiencing. Their empathy and genuine care was evidenced as they offered me a cupcake, a simple gesture that provided a brief repsit from the chaos surrounding me. Apologizing for the way I was being treated, these nurses became beacons of kindness amidst a storm of confusion. Despite the nurses' kindness, the lack of information about my destination continued to torment me. I yearned for clarity and a sense of control over my own fate. Desperate to reach out to my mother and share my anguish, I pleaded to be allowed to make a phone call. Trembling and still consumed by fears, I navigated the arduous process of convincing the staff to grant me this basic right. Finally, around 3 p.m., I connected with my mother, hoping for support and understanding I desperately needed. Unfortunately, the conversation with my mother took an unexpected turn. Instead of offering Silas an encouragement, she advised me to sign the required paperwork and remain silent. At that moment, I felt a profound sense of defeat. How could I find help if, this, if I could not express my thoughts and emotions? The conflicting messages I received left me feeling deceived and betrayed. I had believed that seeking help was the right thing to do, but now it seemed as though, even though my support system was against me. Amidst the already distressing circumstances, as a result of my time in the Navy, I needed immediate access to the restroom. I now have a medical condition, one of which is a major digestive issue. I am unable to hold food, and as soon as any, I eat anything, I will need a bathroom. It was humili humiliating and painful. Wearing conspicuous red scrubs, a symbol associated with mental health, only amplified my embarrassment and sense of shame. The decision to keep the bathroom door open during this exasperated my humiliation. The badly dressed social worker returned, and sadly, my reaction was not great. In the midst of emotional turmoil, I went off. I told her about herself. While this may have seemed like the low point, it was not. The potential loss of my guns, a source of security for many veterans, I began screaming about them that they were trying to take my guns away. I had a very MAGA moment. This was indeed the low point. There is a complex relationship between mental health, personal safety, and the rights of individuals who have served in the military. When working with the veteran population, firearm ownership needs to be taken into consideration when treating mental health issues. 
Despite my ongoing turmoil and lack of information, I was not picked up until around 8 o'clock. Before leaving, the nurse gave me back my phone and assured me it would be returned to me once I got in the ambulance. The promise of transportation being provided back turned out to be false. I finally was able to call my family and let them know that I was okay. I asked some paramedics where they were taking me, and I was told I was being taken to Lebanon, Pennsylvania VA hospital, which was a few hours away. This was some bullshit. Upon arriving at the psychiatric ward, I was at my breaking point. I may have been hysterical at this point. I could not contain my tears. The medical staff administered a sedative to calm me down and put me to sleep. I cried myself to sleep in a cold, uncomfortable room with a very thin mattress and subpar sheets. The only thing that gave me comfort during this time were books. They had a limited selection, and I spent my time reading five books over the three days that I was there. Bright and early, the staff began to encourage me to attend meetings and participate in programs. I said no. Breakfast was some <laughs> at some ungodly hour, so I declined that as well. The following day, I had a meeting with my doctor who emphasized the importance of active participation to expedite my release. Realizing the consequences of non-compliance, I attended the meetings and stupid programs and sat there in tears. I was also forced to eat and they monitored my food intake. Clothing was provided to me once I arrived. Thank you to the wonderful people who donate clothes to veteran hospitals, but I do not know if this was the right situation in which to use donated clothing. Used panties? Maybe not. No clothing that actually fit me, no bras. Luckily, I wore a sports bra. Since it didn't have any underwire, I was able to keep it. Otherwise, to add insult to injury, there was a distressing but not surprising lack of representation in the form of essential toiletries for black individuals. The absence of hair products, shampoo, and lotion left me ashy. My hair looked dry and a mess. I felt disgusting and ugly, which made my participation in anything even less. Most of this experience was a blur. The emotional toll and emotional feelings of isolation prevented me from fully engaging in a therapeutic process. My only focus was returning home to see my baby. I just wanted to leave. Remember I said they were going to bring me home? Well, that was a lie. Before releasing me to the waiting room, I had to call someone to come pick me up, despite being hours away from my starting point. My mother was able to come get me. Many veterans do not have that ability. Not everyone has a resources or support system to arrange transportation, highlighting the systematic barriers and inequities that exist within the mental health care system. As I sat in the waiting room for my ride, I began to reflect in this there in my psych my time in the psychiatric ward, my 72 hours of hell. During this time of contemplation, the realization of my decision began to weigh heavy on me as I realized this was the biggest fucking mistake of my life. I thought about the impact this would have on my life, the consequences of this arbitration and the toll it took on me emotionally. The intersected journey underscores the importance of comprehensive and accessible mental health services, as well as a need for reflection and understanding when making decisions about one's mental well-being. My story emphasizes the significance of providing comprehensive and inclusive care in psychiatric settings, ensuring individuals from all backgrounds feel seen, understood, and supported during their healing journey. Veterans deserve compassionate and supportive environments. The VA needs to be compassionate and respectful in the treatment of veterans facing mental health crisis. The journey through involuntary hold was marked by ongoing humiliation, broken promises, and a profound sense of vulnerability. My path towards seeking help has been fraught with challenges. 
The conflicting emotions I experienced during my involuntary hold only served to deepen my sense of despair. The kindness of the nurses provided brief moments of respite, reminding me that compassion and understanding can exist within a system. However, I remain committed to advocating for my rights, seeking the help I need. Despite the setbacks I face, I hope my journey will lead other veterans to the care and support that some desperately require. I know that it is hard to seek help after a traumatic experience, but there is still hope. The end. Well, thank you so much. Um, So that is my short story that I wrote. And part two, um, I'm working with my editor right now. And that honestly is probably going to be published by the end of this week. So stay tuned for that. And you can find it on Amazon. Just search 72 Hours of Hell um, or just search Amber Viola in books and you'll find it. So um, if anyone has any questions or comments, they would like to say I have a little mic here and so you can take this and ask your questions so we can hear you on the pod or comments I'll ask a um, question I guess I'll ask a question (laughs) okay Um, after you left VA when did you feel like it was important to share this story I mean because that is an experience so, and you know, I'm grateful that you shared it because other people would be able to learn from yeah. your experience. But like, when did you feel like, okay, this is something that I want to share publicly and like turn it into a short story published book? So I actually, when I got home, I voice recorded this whole thing. Um, I voice recorded the whole incident. I just threw it out. And because I knew I needed to remember it. And I already had pieces that I really didn't remember because it was so traumatizing. I was drugged up. Um, So there's a lot of parts that I don't honestly remember. So I knew I needed to get it all out. Initially, I knew I needed to tell it because I knew what they did was illegal. I didn't really know how or why, but I knew that it was. And so once I kind of looked it up and found out yeah, you can't do this to people. I was like, okay, I really need to write this. But it wasn't really an easy decision because I genuinely, as I said in in here, felt terrified that like this could ruin my life or ruin my future or anything like that because there's still such a stigma. But I knew that I had to and I knew that I was a big enough person that I could deal with the consequences because there's a lot of veterans and friends of mine that are dead already. So like, I feel like I didn't really have a choice with that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was a lot. <laughs> um, but I feel like so many people are silenced and they feel like it's only them and they're isolated. So just hearing that is just so impactful because, you know, somebody else probably went through the same thing and they didn't have support. Um, what would you, what was your idea uh, when you were going in? What did you think they were supposed to do for you? And then um, how do you go about changing it um, and coming together like to change these things? All right, so the first question, 
was I knew like initially I knew they were going to take my phone from me and stuff but I was under the understanding from kind of like reading about like I, I'm I'm a dork so I do I read everything I was looking at the website you know I got the packet from my therapist so I figured once I went once I got checked into behavioral health then I would have the scrubs on then they would take my phone and kind of we would start that whole process but as soon as I went into the emergency room I wasn't even placed in like an emergency room room. I was placed in some weird little like offside holding thing with like no door, it was freezing. And then they gave me these red scrubs and I was just like, okay, but nobody else has this on. I know what these mean, you know? And he gave me some weird socks and stuff. And I just remember being so cold and I was so hungry, I didn't get food. So it wasn't even like they said, hey, let's get you something to eat. Like, let me bring you some lunch. Like. Let me get you some dinner and stuff. Um, so that it wasn't that I expected like a ton of, you know, the star treatment, but that and also not that they would send me hours away. I specifically stated that I wanted to stay in Wilkes-Barre. So I didn't know that this is the part that's illegal. When I went in there voluntarily and said I have a plan with my therapist and all this stuff, they should have respected that. And when I said I don't want to not be sent hours away they should have respected that because i voluntarily went in you can't tell somebody oh we'll sign this or we're going to make you sign it that's not right. you don't have any autonomy at that point um also i didn't know where i was going till i was in the ambulance um and the ambulance people told me so that they should have had a conversation with me at least and told me where i was going and like all these things which which they really didn't so that's just kind of some of the stuff that, you know, and the social worker should have just been a nicer person, you know, right. and that's, and, and honestly, and told me the truth because she lied and I knew that she was lying and I don't think she realized that I was a social worker, but if anybody else had gone in or not known that, you know, and that, that, was that wasn't question. right. Like, so are these people that work in the hospitals, are they veterans themselves or these are people that? Most of them honestly aren't. Yeah. And I, and I, and that is definitely part of the problem and part of the issue because we handle things different. We talk differently. Um, and there's a difference between like wanting to actively commit suicide and suicide ideations. And when you're a veteran, you're, you're able to kind of differentiate between the two of like, okay, I'm having a hard time and I think about killing myself all the time, but I'm not actively like going to do it. Right. And cause they'll ask you, you know, do you have a plan? Well, we always have a plan. We have a plan of the day. Like, you know, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. So if you want to ask me, I can tell you 10 different ways I've thought about it all the time. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm actively doing it, but, it, but it's something that I constantly think about. So if you want to be able to talk to a veteran, I think you need to be able to understand kind of where they're coming from and our sense of humor. And we've seen some crazy things and we talk very vulgar and, and you know, and foul language in crazy ways. And I think you have to kind of understand that and they don't. So then they really think that you're just out here like, you know, I'm about to jump off a bridge and I'm like, okay, but I'm trying to like talk to you that I need help. And these are the thoughts that I'm thinking about now that I'm going outside right now to go jump off a bridge. Like my kid is asleep. I'm here. I don't have socks on. Like it's cold. I'm not doing all that, but, but I'm going through it, you know? And then I think the second part of your question is. You know, I hope by telling the story and continually to tell people that veteran suicide is an epidemic um, will help and it will 
get out there the article that I saw about the other VA hospital like they're doing investigations and stuff um and there were so many veterans involved and it is illegal what they're doing so I think the more widespread that we could really get this um I think that's what I try to do and that's that's what my hope is the story is beautiful. I do really, it's, it's tough as a mom to hear, but I really do love the bluntness of it. Okay, as a veteran, and that you, now that you know that they're breaking the law, do you have a plan to expose it to help other veterans so that they don't become traumatized by the same scenarios that happened to you? Yeah, I did reach out to the, I can't, of course, right now remember the name of the place where the VA hospital was, but I did reach out to the author of the newspaper article that I had received, and I emailed him my story, and I said, hey, I just want, it's in Loma Linda, the VA hospital in Loma Linda. So they were using involuntary psychiatric holds that violated veterans' rights. Um, a watch, watchdog agency is doing the investigation. So I emailed the author of this and I shared it. I've shared it with like all the media around here. I know actually part of me complaining about the VA during COVID sparked one of the reporters that I know to do a whole series on the VA um, because they weren't allowed, allowing visitors over COVID. Um, we did an interview together about them not allowing you to bring kids with you to your appointments and different stuff. So. I work with Senator Casey um, on his veterans committee and stuff. So I'm just trying to get the word out there. And, you know, I think the first step was finding out that it was illegal. And and I think then we could actually take something like this to like the patient advocacy here in Wilkes-Barre and say, hey, this is what happened to Loma Linda and this is illegal and this is what happened to me. Because when you read the article and i'll post the article on my facebook again um it reads just like my story like it's actually insane and there's parts in there about vets yelling about their guns uh, <laughs> and i felt very seen in that moment but it it literally reads exactly what i wrote and it and it and i started like crying because i felt so validated i was like i fucking knew it i knew you guys were wrong I knew you in your terrible suit. Like I knew the whole time, you know, but, but, <laughs> um, but one of the things too, is I think that they need to have you not in those red scrubs because it really does something to you. And when everybody else is wearing something completely different, you know that this is the people on the seventh floor, like, you know, just put them in something else and let people, why can't people bring their own underwear? You know, that's why is that? That was a that was a very hard thing for me. OK, I was rough <laughs> and I was and it sound, you know, and my, those things might sound silly, but you're there. I was there the whole over the whole weekend and stuff. And if I wouldn't have worn a sports bra with me, then I wouldn't have had a bra the whole time. You know, and so then they want you to be out there in these meetings. I looked like Angela's doll. Okay, my hair was like, <laughs> I didn't have any lotion. There's other black people there. We were all ashy, like just, uh, they had that terrible, but, uh, 
coconut butter that's really thin. If you know, you know. And so it was just so much. And I know all those things are voluntarily given to people. You know, so I appreciate those people who do that. I've done it before with many groups of volunteering and donating stuff. But that's one thing that we can do. And I did talk to them about it, actually, because I said, you have black patients here and like we cannot use any of the what is this? None of this. I said, you know, that you just need stuff that's going to cater to people with different skin types and different hair types. And they ended up giving me products for like people who had psoriasis and eczema, which I do anyway. So it worked perfectly. But and then I'm giving it to the other black people in there, too. So I'm like, dude, like, you know, (laughs) just one other quick comment. Do you think it would be effective? You know how many letters I've written to the patient advocacy office. <laughs> if you send a letter and CC the director of the hospital as well and get other veterans to write letters, because I know they do read those because they move like that yeah. when I had written the letters there. I mean, maybe. And I think having press and putting pressure on on them publicly embarrassing them. Um, I think that seems to work really well because the public embarrassment worked for them lifting the ban on people coming to visit and stuff like that. But a lot of the stuff that goes on, nobody knows about. So I think the first step is really just advocating and making sure that people know. And honestly, I couldn't even tell you if I had any veterans who would be willing to write a letter because they're so terrible. Stacy. So I have two questions. The first one is, when you found out that what they did was illegal, why didn't why didn't you and why don't you think other veterans don't pursue some sort of legal action to to start the process of trying to correct it? Um, and then the other question is actually kind of for your mom. So when when you said that you had called home, called her, and she said, just sign the papers and do what they said, it almost seemed like like she was fearful that if you didn't do that, that that something was going to happen. So I just kind of wanted to know from her, like, did she have a similar situation where, or did she know somebody that they didn't sign those papers, they didn't do what they were told, and then it, you know, it kind of, it caused... Yeah. I think your first question I'll answer. And then if you mom, if you wanted to answer that, but it was, I was in shock, honestly, when I first was reading that article and it took me a couple days to kind of like get out of that. Um, and you don't know what to do. Like you don't know who to reach out to or who to talk to. So when I reached out to the reporter, because I wanted to reach out to the watchdog group, that was um, doing this investigation on the other side. Um, And I've been actually talking to um, one of our mutual friends, Kelly, who just won um, Enemy. She has a friend who's an investigative journalist and we were talking about basically doing a deep dive on the VA and their treatment and getting help there and things like that. So there's a couple of different ways, but I think it's just a lot of, effort and you don't really know where to start or or what to really do with it. So I'm hoping that this will help get the ball rolling and just people knowing about it and spreading it and sharing it would really would really help. And then the second part, um, I can't answer that for you. (laughs) 
No, for me, it was more talking to her. I tried to calm her down, number one. Because I was a disaster. Right. And I knew it was a short call, and they weren't going to give her the phone for a long time. Number two, the way she was describing it, if she didn't sign the voluntary, they were going to, what did they, the 309? Yes, yes, it's the same thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but they would have basically forced her into a different scenario, mm-hmm. which was already crazy. And I was already in mom, in mom mode <laughs> because when I found out she was in Lebanon, we used to live in Lebanon. So you didn't you know? even know until no, I didn't know until she didn't know until I was already there. Right, and the fact that and you didn't know until you were in the ambulance. No, right, and the fact that we were both veterans, and I knew God, most of these veterans. For one, their parents don't live near them, and a lot of them unfortunately don't have a car. And if they got way up, nobody there, else in there had a car. Right, so I like specifically, yeah. By ambulance when right, you're and this, so that was relieved. the other thing was I was just very concerned. I mean, I had a good car, so it wasn't a problem driving up there. But I thought, man, this is effed up. <laughs> so I was really mad. I was really, really upset. But the most important thing at that point was just to deal with it through. You know, I kept telling them, try to relax and flow through so you can get out. Yeah. Otherwise, they will just hold you to be longer than 72 hours. Yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't, like, initially I was very confused. Um, also, I'd like to add that I didn't have any of my medication that day normally, my normal medication that I take, because Sandy had told me to go and not take anything so that they could give me my meds and everything like that. So I know my blood pressure was super high. Um, I was hungry and I was cold. You know, I think I was just shocked that she said that, but I knew what she meant. Like, I knew that she was like, they're going to make you stay here. Um, And then once I got there, I kept getting told that, like, they're going to make you, we'll make you stay here if you don't go to this group or if you don't come to breakfast, if you don't eat your food. The hospital food was disgusting. Like, it was so gross. And at that time, I was really sick still um, with my stomach. And so every, every meal, they sat there and they watched me eat and made sure that I ate, like, the right amount of stuff. And I have high blood pressure, so nothing had salt in it. And there was no sugar, and I couldn't have juice. It was, it was horrible. Um, so, yeah, that was um, a thing. So I, I definitely know there was no, like, hard feelings or anything. I knew that she meant the best. It was just shitty because in my head I'm like, well, now what I'm going to do? I'm just going to stay crazy because obviously I can't talk to anybody about this. Yeah. No. Did anybody else? Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, listen to your story. What? really caught my attention was the feelings of just loss of control. Um, And I'd just like to hear, what would you say to someone who feels like they have no control of their life, who feels like there's just nothing left worth their life? Um, I have felt that way a lot. It is hard when things go wrong in your life and they're not your fault. Um, I know for me that's something really hard because I am a control freak, I'm very type A, so I like to plan everything and have everything in order. And so when stuff happens outside of my life that now is gonna affect in my life, it's really hard. 
And it definitely seems like when like it rains, it pours. So everything's going to go wrong all at one time. <laughs> um, but I think it's just you have to find something to hold on to. Um, and it's not always something super big. It can be something little like, you know, wanting to finish school or, you know, goals that you have set or some way that you kind of want to make leave your mark on the world um but at the same time there's nothing outside of your life that's going to make you want to stay alive and that's really hard for people to understand but you can have a great life you can have good kids you can have the best family you can have money that doesn't save you from mental health Ill illness like it doesn't save you from anxiety and depression so those things can't really be all or nothing because sometimes they're not really enough um, I would say you have to definitely get help because it's it's an imbalance and it's not normal. Like our natural way of thinking is to preserve our life. Um, I talk about this in the, in the second chapter about how there's a lot of people I know who are only living for their children. And, you know, that's a hard statement to make, but it's it's the truth, you know, where people are just going every day and grinding just for that. But there, it goes against your mind to want to hurt yourself, you know, because we have self-preservation. You know, we've heard the things like if you bite your finger as hard as you bit a carrot, your finger would, you would bite your finger off. But we don't do that because our mind won't let us. So when your mind is going against your body, like you need help, you need something. And it can be a combination of therapy or meds or like Reiki or yoga, um, acupuncture whichever way it is but you kind of have to get everything together and everything lined up and I don't really know a way to do that on my own yet <laughs> um you know without without help and without therapy and without medication and stuff like that and um and you know there's a it's a double-edged sword because when I'm on my meds I don't feel 100% like myself and I know I don't come across as myself a lot if I'm fully medicated. Um, so, so sometimes I have to kind of, you know, you have to take the good with the bad, but I also know that if I'm not on my meds, it's, <laughs> I'm trying to run my car off a bridge. <laughs> like that's, that's what's constantly going through my head. So sometimes it's like, okay, be weird and, and, and more introspective and, and introverted and not talk as much or die. You know, and so that's kind of how it, how it feels sometimes. I hope that answered the question. Absolutely. Yep. I thought because I've got several military friends that are basically on the meds. I thought the meds make you commit suicide. So, <laughs> the side effects of many depression and anxiety meds ssris are is suicide there is a side effect to suicide from depression meds um most of the time it's the risk is higher in younger people um than it is in like people millennials and stuff or older gen z but that is what the side effects are and so there are people who experience really terrible side effects um i went through that with somebody who was close to me who switched their meds and it was really really bad 
Um, so that can definitely happen. And um, the next chapter I talk about medicine and how it's really trial and error and how you have to try things and what works for me might not work for you and vice versa. Um, so sometimes you have to try different doses. Sometimes a medicine might work for a while and then it can stop working. So you really have to work with your doctor um, and be willing to kind of be flexible with your medicine and stuff because it, you can have adverse side effects and it can be really bad and it can lead to suicide, which is wild. That, that's one of the side effects. <laughs> so yeah. Is there any other questions or comments? research on just regular hospital visits and pain and and different things differences between Caucasian people mm. and black people and so do you feel like your experience do you feel like the color of your skin altered your experience at all do you feel like this is happening to more often to black veterans than it is to white veterans I definitely think that had a part to do with my experience, especially when I was visibly like upset, crying upset, and it was taken as like, I'm going to get security. And I'm like, well, now, now I'm mad. Okay. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, and I, there has been times in the VA where it's been a little questionable, but that is also hospital experiences in general um, with that. And so that's definitely a piece of it. And also being veteran, it's weird because there are people who really think we're kind of like all unstable and all crazy. Um, so they have this like thing like you're a violent and you're and you're crazy and there's this stigma. And even though you're in a VA hospital and you would think that they wouldn't have that stigma there, they sometimes really do still have that there with you. Um, and different mental health illnesses they show very differently in people of color than white people. And um, so when people are autistic, that's gonna show differently. It shows differently in men and women. Um, so it definitely are variations of things and we have different symptoms. So a lot of times it can be missed. And like, I think my early diagnosis was missed and missed my mood disorder and things because I would have needed to have a mood disorder to get postpartum depression. But they had kind of put me with like adjustment disorder and that wasn't really the right diagnosis and it can take you a long time to really get the right diagnosis and stuff. And that is a really, really hard part. Even just getting diagnosed as a black woman with like ADHD or different things like that. And because we present our symptoms different, and so medical people as a whole aren't trained on how these symptoms present in these people, in these people, even in kids as or as old people, you know. Um, so I think that has a lot of factors to do with it. In the VA hospital, they don't always get practice with every demographic and with everybody because you're not working on everything with everybody, you know, and being a millennial now, we have young veterans. So like, we're not presenting the same PTSD that Vietnam has presented. Like our triggers are gonna be different. The way we handle it's gonna be different and it's gonna look different in black Americans that are serving as in white Americans that are serving as well. So I, I think it's a lot, but yeah, I, I definitely think that has a lot to do with it. 
There are groups, and I think um, there are organizations now, especially trying to deal with OEF and OIF veterans who are Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom, which is what I was in, um, who are trying to do more groups. Our, my age of veterans, we kind of are over it. None of us want to join anything ever again. So like once we get out, we're, we're done. And so that is a hard part of trying to get us to be involved in like an American Legion, to be FWs, in support groups. Um, I tried a support group once and the reason I didn't like it is because it, the age demographic and also like it was all old white veterans. You know, and I was like, we're not going to talk about the same things and the same issues and stuff. So that it would need to be focused on different generations, different um, uh theaters of operation, all those kind of things. Yeah. Is there anything else? Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining me on the first episode of season of three of Politics But Make It Fashion. I am your host, Amber Viola. You can find us on Instagram at Politics But Make It Fashion 1, on TikTok at Politics But Make It Fashion, and you can find us on our Facebook at Politics But Make It Fashion, and we will chat soon.